This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. This is Elise, the managing director of the show. I would imagine that a lot of you, like me, are enduring airline travel this week so that you could spend the Thanksgiving holiday with your people. I realize I'm the outlier here, but I love airports. Before I worked for the show full-time, I had a job that was about 70% travel, and I loved it, even though it was exhausting. I've loved traveling, especially flying, since I was little, and every single time I'm on an airplane, I take a moment to look out the window and marvel at the wonder of flight. It really is incredible when you think about it. I love the hustle and bustle of the airport, imagining where all the people are going and why. I love the challenge of being the best security. I just give me an A plus TSA. I just I love the possibility all of it presents. Now, whether you share my adoration of the whole idea or not, and I know a lot of you do not, we probably all agree on this. The experience of flying has gotten worse. Like a lot worse. And I swear, it's not just because now I often have a squirmy toddler on my lap, although that doesn't help. But the structural experience of flying is becoming an increasingly negative one for most Americans. A smooth flying experience can feel rare, much less one that's actually enjoyable. Even for someone like me, who is coming in with rose-colored optimism for the whole ordeal. Why? What's going on? Why does something so miraculous feel like such a drag? Our guest today is here to answer those questions. Ganesh Sitaraman is a professor at Vanderbilt Law School, the director of the Vanderbilt Policy Accelerator, and the author of the new book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. What a great title. He and Sarah sat down to chat just before his book released last week about how we ended up here, where the process of flying feels like such a burden and the solutions seem so daunting. You will be quite surprised by the unexpected characters who played a role in deregulating the airline industry, which, spoiler, this is partially due to deregulation. But those who fought for and against regulation, it's going to shock you. Sarah and Ganesh also talked about how change for the better could happen. They ended on a hopeful note, I promise. This conversation is fun and interesting, as is Ganesh. We know you're going to learn something. And if you, like me, are flying this week, we hope it offers a little perspective into why things are the way they are and a little hope for a future Thanksgiving someday when flying doesn't seem like such a devil's bargain. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. 
I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Welcome to Fancy Politics. It's been a while. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you again. Well, this is an apt time of year to talk about the horror that is air travel. What a good timing you had with your book. Did you plan it to come out during the holidays? <laughs> we we actually did plan it to come out during the holidays. That's appropriate. The thought was, you know, everyone's going to be flying and there's always some disaster around the holidays. Yep. And people want to know why. They want to know why? why is it like this and why do I have to suffer like this every every year? Yep. Yep. Now we're going to get into the air specific aspects of the suffering, but you have a broader framework around this, which is a bigger point about regulation and deregulation generally. So let's do a little bit of the the framework and then we'll get into the air travel part. Let me tell you a little bit about how I decided to write this book, because I think it, it, it ties into bigger questions about public policy. You know, a few years ago, some colleagues of mine and I, we were working on a textbook that we called the law of networks, platforms, and utilities. And this was things like transportation, energy, telecommunications, banking. And what's special about these industries is that throughout history, and that's really going back to the 13th century in some cases, you know, so wow. hundreds of years, people thought that these businesses were different than other businesses. And they were important infrastructure. They were critical public services. They were kind of foundations for commerce or communications or civic life. And that they had to be regulated especially because of that, because we wanted everyone to have access to them, because we wanted them to be available for all kinds of businesses. And, you know, that work really was exciting, because we learned a lot about all these sectors, you know, railroads and maritime shipping and oil and gas pipelines, the telegraph, the telephone, I hope your all next kinds book of is how daycare is a public utility. But we, I will not derail our conversation with that. You know, one thing people talk a lot about, childcare is a social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a utility-like service that we all need. Exactly. And but, but you know, for this book, as I, as I dug into the history for this textbook and was writing the chapter in the textbook on airlines, you know, it just became clear that the shift away from this kind of special system of regulation for these infrastructure sectors to a totally deregulated market competition model as opposed to a regulated competition model, is what shapes everything about flying and what makes it miserable and what makes the industry problematic too in a bunch of ways that we've seen over the last few decades. And so really the story, you know, the, the, the spoiler here, why is flying miserable? The answer is really two words, public policy. Mm -hmm. We had made a bunch of choices and that made it more miserable by unleashing a set of dynamics that explain a lot about how our system works and doesn't work. 
Well, I thought this history is so illuminating because you show the public policy's role and how we got here. But tell us what the public policy was before the Chicago School, which I want you to talk about, got involved because it's got so much broader application outside of the airline industry. So tell us what what did it look like to fly? I vaguely remember I flew by myself as a child in the 80s to see my dad in California on TWA. And so I, I think some of us have memories that it, it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always so miserable. So what did it look like under that more regulated framework? So let me give a quick historical overview. And I'm going to skip the period from the Wright brothers inventing the airplane. When we were flying mail. I thought that was so interesting. Like our biggest thing was like, how are we going to fly the, I love that the post office, I did not, there were lots of characters in this book I did not expect to appear in the U.S. post office was one of them. The post office is, is a key part of the early stage of, of the origins of uh, American aviation, but but we'll skip that little period. You know, to my mind, there's really three eras that we could think about in flying. So the first one, uh, I think we could think of as a stable system. And this period existed from the 1930s to the 1970s. And policymakers in the 30s said, you know, what we really want is for airlines to be a stable, reliable service. And so they created a regulatory body in the federal government called the Civil Aeronautics Board. And the regulators allocated routes to different airlines to fly from one city to another. They set prices for the flights. And they made sure that the airlines didn't go bankrupt or need bailouts. And they weaned them off of subsidies because this was still a pretty young industry in the 1930s. In short, they treated airlines like a public utility. And so this was a period of regulated competition. It lasted for about 40 years. And then in the 1970s, Advocates for deregulation said this system is basically a cartel and that we should have market competition because cartels are bad. Listen, don't skip who that was. Who is the key player in this call for deregulation? I about fell out of my chair. So I'll say there's there's two key players. And what's surprising about it is on one side, it's who you might expect, conservatives and economists in the more libertarian kind of frame who are opposed to government regulation. So mm-hmm. you mentioned the Chicago School the Chicago earlier, school. but it was Chicago School style economists and, and their allies in government and elsewhere in academia. So influential that when I read that part, I thought, yeah, I forgot this was a point of view because now it's just the water we swim in. It's just what people think. Yes. But the really interesting thing was the other side of who supported this. Guys, you're not ready. The leading advocates for deregulation at the time, Senator Ted Kennedy and now former Supreme Court Justice, then chief counsel to Ted Kennedy, Stephen Breyer. Stephen Breyer was not who I was expecting to show up in the pages of this book. Yeah. And so you have liberals like Kennedy and Breyer. And deregulation was passed by Jimmy Carter was the president when it was signed. So you had Democrats and Republicans who were on board with this move. And for Democrats, they thought it was, you know, kind of a pro-consumer move and something that would show that they weren't just big government liberals. But their pitch was was a pretty good pitch from a from a sales perspective. You know, they said, imagine you could have 200 stable airlines with cheaper prices and no real downsides. All we need to do is let the airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want and charge whatever they want. And the problem, though, is when we did deregulation in 78, we didn't end up in the dream world that the deregulators asked for. What we really got was phase two, which was Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. And it was this period of cutthroat competition in the 1980s where airlines were trying to break the unions and they were engaged in all kinds of anti-competitive behaviors. And we saw dozens of bankruptcies and mergers, all kinds of chaos. 
And over the few decades after that, I think we've really settled now into phase three, which is a kind of monopoly capitalism, where you don't really have that much choice. You get often bad service at bad prices. And if you sit and coach, you know, in the back of the plane, you might end up with a bad back too at the end of your... Or sewage running down the airplane aisle. This happened uh, like a few weeks ago. It's just, it's not great out there, guys. It can be tough. And, and, you know, when you think about where we are now, we're actually in a place now where there is less competition today than there was under regulation in the 70s. So the top four airlines, the biggest four airlines, have a larger market share now than they did in 1977. So we actually have, and we have more concentration at airports. And so this shift was one where there were a lot of unintended or unanticipated consequences by the promoters of deregulation. But the opponents, they they predicted a lot of what was going to happen. Well, that part was really convicting for me because as a, you know, basically a lifelong Democrat, the story I have in my head is whatever you're doing, <laughs> whatever type of change you're making in a corporate environment, you cannot trust the narrative coming from the corporations because they just want to make money. They're never looking out for the public good. Their public policy recommendations are always going to be one sided. Like you just can't trust them. And so it was it was like truly a little mind bending to read this, to hear Stephen Breyer going, no, let's just like it was literally like, let's just try it. Let's just try something fun and different. It felt like that was the vibe. Like we needed something fun and different to vibe, try. So let's try this. And to have the CEOs of the airlines literally screaming at them, being like, you're going to ruin everything because I'm I'm like, again, my default is like, well, don't trust them because they're just looking to make money. But they were right. They were like, this is going to be a disaster. This is one of these places where there's a lot of like strange things in the book of who's on what side. Exactly. That's what makes it such a good learning experience. And so you see, you know, Robert Crandall, who's like later the legendary head of American Airlines, you know, he was opposed to deregulation, said that Breyer and, and their team was going to wreck the industry by deregulating the airlines. And then when he becomes head of American in the 80s and is and is running the airline in this new, you know, cutthroat environment, he's good with a knife like anybody else. And he's out there and and doing as much aggressive stuff as he can do to keep American getting bigger, more powerful, and more successful. And then fast forward a couple decades later, you know, once he's he's done being CEO and it's it's the 2000s and and he gives a speech saying, you know, actually, like the this system isn't the right system. We should regulate it like a public utility. That's what it takes to have a leading system in the world that's better for the country. And, you know, one thing I thought was just surprising was the sense that for Crandall, you know, I think he really understood both before and after he was running American, that that was the right way to do it. But if you set the rules up where that's not yeah. going to be, if you don't set it up as a public utility, you set it up as competition, he was going to be a competitor and he was going to win the game. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Exactly. And and so I, I think that's how how he was. So it, it is a really striking thing that you, you know, will maybe have your political views challenged a little bit when you, you find really yourself will. agreeing with, you know, Barry Goldwater in, in some <laughs> cases or others who had who had different views about about deregulation than you might expect. Well, and I think there's so many interesting and important components of this that it's so interesting because it's almost like the uniqueness of the airline industry illustrate 
the like sort of universal tenets of this public utilities regulatory argument, right? So when you say it sounds so good, it's like when people say my least favorite phrase in American politics, uh, I'm a fiscal conservative. Well, who isn't? You know, like, okay, cool. (laughs) That doesn't illuminate anything. Um, And so when people say we should have competition, again, because I think the Chicago school has been so influential it's just become this default little like, yeah, we want people to thrive. Oh, well, of course, we all do. But there's so many aspects that you need to have a really competitive environment, like economies of scale, like access to hubs that they didn't understand when they were. Well, I don't know if they didn't understand it or they just sort of ignored it. Like all these different components, not to mention just I think this idea that it was the stability was baked in and that they weren't affected by things like prices in the Middle East or September 11th or COVID-19, that there weren't this this rise and fall, these waves in the industry that like we're bailing them out every time. We're sending billions of dollars to bail the airline industry out because we need it, because we can't just say competition sucks sometimes and you lose a lot of money and go bankrupt. I mean, there were lots of bankruptcies, but like to a certain extent, if the market says, there are no airlines now because there's not enough money during a COVID-19 pandemic to sustain airlines. It's not like we can all go, well, that's what competition, that's what the market requires. So I guess that's what we'll do. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, this was part of what people in the 30s understood was that you wanted a reliable, stable system and you might not get it in a regular market without regulation. And so they put in regulations to make sure you had that stability and reliability in a way that you know, allowed for some competition, Mm -hmm. allowed for airlines to make a profit, but wasn't going to be this thing where we're seesawing back and forth between boom years and bust years. And that's what's happened. We're sort of in a boom bust cycle now. Um, And you mentioned some of the examples, you know, the Gulf War happens in 91 is a big crisis. 1991 is a big crisis for the airlines. September 11th, big crisis for the airlines. COVID-19, big crisis for the airline. And it's not because they, like, mismanaged the competition or the market. Like, <laughs> what? They couldn't have done anything. Th- these are external events that are yes. happening that create big shocks on demand. And But as a society, we still want the service to be reliable. Right. And so that's the key part. When, when you have something that's a critical public service like that, you know, you want to have availability for commerce, for national security, for tourism, for all kinds of things. And and that means you have to treat it a little bit differently. You know, we, we could talk about airlines as being too important to fail, you know, hearkening back to our too big to fail debates mm-hmm. over the banks, but but it's a kind of similar thing. We need banks. And if they're going to fail, then it's going to have cascading crisis effects across the economy. And so, you know, we have the bailouts, you know, now more than a decade ago after the 2008 financial crash. Um, in the in the financial sector. And it's not so dissimilar here. These are like essential services. And unfortunately, the system we have now is one where in the good years, the profits all go to the companies and their shareholders and the CEOs mm-hmm. and everyone. And in the bad years, you need a bunch of public money to come in in order to provide support. And, you know, in COVID, I think, you know, what's really critical here is it was essential to do it. This was important because yeah. it was livelihoods of all the flight attendants and the pilots and the workers at the airports. You know, they were all going to get potentially fired and or or laid off or furloughed or or something. And that would have been really devastating for a lot of people. And it would have been devastating for the service because it would have been even worse than it was trying to get the industry to bounce back once demand picked up again. And so while I think it was important, 
it really raises to me a bigger question, which is why should we have a system like this? Yeah. Well, and we got the worst because because we tell them, listen, use those knives. They took the money to keep people on. And then they said, but you can retire if you want to go ahead and retire. And then we got back and we don't have enough staff to do bags or fly planes or run the airlines. And I think we also got the worst of both worlds with the competitive aspect because we got these ones that are too big to fail, which would be great if they were so big that they were running routes all over the country, uh, but they're not. They're shutting down routes left, right, and center in like not even small cities. So we got, again, we're getting the worst of both sides of the spectrum. For everyone listening, how many of the four big airlines fly to Toledo, Ohio? Mm. Think about think about your answer. I'll give you I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a multiple choice question. It's either one, two, or three. Zero. Zero. The answer <laughs> is zero. I read the book. That's cheating. You cheated, but the but people, you know, as a as a spoiler to everyone, the answer is zero. And you don't have big airlines flying to Toledo now. In fact, since COVID, seventy four cities have lost service from mm. one of the big carriers. And you've got some places losing all service altogether. And, you know, this is a real problem in part because, you know, access to air service for a city is important for its economic fortunes. You're not going to start a new Fortune 500 company in a city that doesn't have any air service. Right. You might not even want to have your company in a city that has minimal air service. You're even your company's conference, much less your company itself. Yeah, a conference, a convention, um, tourism to your location, you know, all kinds of things it's really valuable for. So as a country, if one of our values is that we want to have regional and geographic access to opportunity and economic growth and economic energy, air service is a critical component of that. And, you know, you think about it where we electrified as a country, you know, rural places so everyone could have electricity. Um, We've struggled with that on broadband. I'd say Mm -hmm. that goes back to kind of forgetting our tradition of regulated capitalism. Or things we should think of as a utility. (laughs) (laughs) But but there's efforts now to try to to do more of that. Air travel is part of that story, too. Here's the thing. I think there's aspects of this that are like intuitive to people. I think the aspect of like, we told them to use the knives and they made the service crappy and they cut routes while getting bigger and squeezing us price rise so that we're paying more. And all of that, there's like a, a certain, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I really struggled with the capitalization of the airline industry. And I'm gonna need you walk me through that a little bit. Cause I think that part is very important, but harder to understand intuitively as far as like, the frequent flyer miles and the credit cards and all that. I think that that is harder to understand, but vitally important. Yeah, so it, it's one of the the areas that I found pretty interesting in working on the book. You know, I think for a lot of people who fly, you see the kind of gradations of mm-hmm. point systems and benefits. And, you know, even on some of the airlines, they walk through and say, do you want to sign up for our credit card? By pressure. They don't ask. Yeah. They kind of pressure you. And so, you know, you've got this system where they're, and, and how does all that work? And, you know, one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book is, you know, in a, in a way, airlines are kind of like banks almost now. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of analogy. They create these point systems, you know, really out of thin air. It's not like there's gold or something backing it, right? In the same way that governments create money and, you know, money has value because the federal government says it does. You know, this is what happens basically in the point system. And so they create these point systems and they have this partnership with credit cards. They, they sell the points, they issue the points. And what's really striking, I think, about it is, you know, they've built this whole apparatus to make money. And and 
it works for them. It works for everyone, but it doesn't really work that well anymore for people in the systems. Mm -hmm. So while they started as a kind of, you know, buy four sandwiches, get your fifth one free kind of deal, over time, they've moved from frequent flyer points to really high spender credit card systems. The idea is you get benefits if you spend a lot more. Those benefits are in the form of points. But even recently, what we've seen is that it's actually harder to get the status. You get less for it. You yep. get less for it because they can inflate away the price of items by saying, oh, it now costs more to use your points. Or maybe there's just fewer flights on which you can use points to, to buy your ticket. And we've seen some airlines pulling back on access to lounges and other things. So it's not obvious that for a lot of places, for a lot of people, that this is still going to be a good deal going forward. Um, and I think it raises bigger questions. Why are airlines in the credit card business anyway? Shouldn't yeah. they really be in the air travel business? Mm-hmm. This was also a thing about deregulation, um, just to bring it back to the book, which is, you know, before deregulation, you know, you wouldn't have had a system of these loyalty points because it's explicitly anti-competitive. The mm-hmm. purpose of it is for you to keep flying on that same airline and not fly a competitor. So it's trying to dissuade you from using competitors and going to wherever the best price is. And so anyone who's ever said, you know, well, I'm not going to fly this other one, which is $10 cheaper because, you know, I want to get the points. That's that's the point. It was your, that's right. stopping competition. But regulators wouldn't have allowed that before. And people in the 80s recognized this was anti-competitive. And the other thing that's going on is during regulation, they were really confined to being just airline businesses. The idea was we didn't want them involved in a lot of other stuff. Yeah. No owning rental cars and hotels and all that. Couldn't own all these other things because we were worried about abuses of power in that in that space because you have all the scale and with scale comes power. And I think that's a real shift that's happened over the last few decades, too. And And I think we need to think very critically, do we really want the kind of financialization of the airline sector like we've seen in so many other sectors? If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. 
They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Okay, so short of time travel, which is not available to us. What are the public policies moving forward that could get us out of this travel hell? Well, in in the book, I give three big principles and then give some some ideas about how we might flesh those out. But the three principles, I think, are first, no more flyover country. We should decide as a country, we don't want to have a system where big chunks of the country don't really have access, including small places, including mid-sized places, which are losing service. We need to have service to a lot of places. Second principle, no bailouts, no bankruptcies. And this is a pro-business position. I'm actually in favor of an airline industry that is successful, that is profitable, that is making money, because I want this to be a service that exists, and I want it to exist in a reliable, stable way. But that means moving it from the kind of booms and busts to Mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more boring. (laughs) And that's the second principle is we should have a system where we don't have the kind of big swings that we've had and where we don't need to to bail them out if there's a big demand shock. And then the third is fair and transparent pricing. You know, it should be a lot simpler than it is now for people. You mean I shouldn't have to open up an incognito tab in order to be treated fairly in a pricing structure? Yeah, you know, it's amazing that airlines can do dynamic pricing where it's different if you buy it on Tuesday versus Wednesday or the morning or the... Or they just know you want it. Yeah, they know you want it. And, you know, you think about personalized pricing, right? Like that could be a thing where it can be really tailored to individuals. You know, we don't have this in other transportation industries. Um, You know, you're going to go on the subway in, you know, Washington, D.C., 
it's the same price if you buy it five yep. minutes before or if you buy it a week in advance. You're not paying different prices when you buy your ticket. You're not paying different prices if you're sitting facing forward or facing backward mm-hmm. or standing up. You know, we, we have rules to say, actually, this is a service that we want kind of consistency for everybody. Um, and, you know, mar- some people like to say, well, market prices are, are important, but it's not just business people, you know, buying last minute tickets, right? It's people who've had a death in the family yeah. or an illness or a crisis and need to get somewhere. And they're at the mercy of this, as opposed to really just having a consistent system, which which we could have. We just have to ask, you know, our policymakers to, to give it to us. I think the hard part is you point out that like because of the way our service works now, we're like we're not a consistent constituency, right? I mean, we are in that everybody uses this service, but because of the way it's been sort of nationalized and decentralized, like how do we begin to advocate for this? It feels like we need sort of a champion on the national stage that we can all support. Yeah, I mean, I think the first place to start is if everyone gets, you know, channels all their inner rage, rage. which you should not channel toward the people on the airplane. You shouldn't yes. don't channel it toward the flight attendants. Don't so channel true. it's not their fault. But like channel it towards your members of Congress and mm-hmm. get them on the phone, talk to them at events, um, write letters to them and tell them you want them to do something about this. And I think that's the real starting point here is moving in that direction because a lot of people are affected. And I think for people in Congress, you know, they fly to, they see all these problems. Yeah, seriously. And so it's just pushing them to understand, you know, we can do something bigger. We can think differently about this. We can push harder on it. And if you, member of Congress, do something, it's actually going to be really popular. And, you know, we the people are going to vote for you again. Yep. uh, In part because you did something about this. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, your book is a great place to start. I think we should all send it to our members of Congress. Thank you so much for writing it. I felt so much smarter after I finished it. And less mad. I mean, I'm still mad, but I feel more educated in my rage. Hopefully mad in the in a, in a direction that points yes. it towards to doing something. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. A huge thanks to Ganesh for joining us and to all of you for the same. We hope you've had the best Thanksgiving available to you and that if you are traveling, you have the best travel experience available to you. And, you know, if you don't, maybe share this episode with the grumbling person in line behind you at the airline counter. Just a thought. Sarah and Beth will be back in your ears on Tuesday to catch up on the news. Happy Thanksgiving. Pantsu Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Christina Quartararo. The Adair family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.